Welcome to Dreaming of Home. I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley, host of this new podcast series launched in conjunction with a group show I curated at the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art in New York City that springboards from Catherine Opie's artwork Self-Portrait Cutting. The photo, taken in 1993, depicts Kathy Opie from behind. A childlike scene of two lesbians holding hands next to a house under the clouds has been cut into her back. The exhibition features 20 of today's most groundbreaking artists, reflecting on the rapid and tumultuous shifts experienced by LGBTQIA communities in the 30 years since Kathy's photograph. In the upcoming episodes, I am joined in the search for home by artists from the exhibition and Leslie Lohman Museum art workers as we explore queer people's hope for a happy, healthy future and the restrictions imposed by wider society on our dreams, our relationships, our families and our bodies. I'm really excited to welcome two brilliant artists to the podcast. Chiffon Thomas is a multidisciplinary artist based in Los Angeles incorporating embroidery, collage, drawing and sculpture to explore the self as split, fractured and transforming. Chiffon contends with the crafted body in his work, examining wider issues of gender, race and sexuality. He holds an MFA from Yale University and a BFA from the School of Art Institute of Chicago and his work is currently on view at the Aldrich Contemporary Art Museum for his first solo museum exhibition, The Cavernous and at the Hammer Museum for Made in LA 2023. The multidisciplinary practice of Leila Babiri transforms everyday materials into objects that address issues surrounding identity, sexuality and human rights. The artist fled her native Uganda to New York in 2015 after being publicly outed in a local newspaper. In spring 2018, Leila was granted asylum with support from the African Services Committee and the New York City Anti-Violence Project. Comprised of debris collected from the streets of New York, Layla's sculptures are woven, whittled, welded, burned and burnished. Her choice to use discarded materials in her work is intentional. The pejorative term for a gay person in the Luganda language is ebiasaga, meaning sugarcane husk. It's rubbish, she explains, the part of the sugarcane you throw out. Welcome to the show! Hi, thanks for having me. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm really happy to speak to both of you today. You've both got really amazing sculptural work included in Dreaming of Home, and I can see lots of parallels in your practice. So I think we're going to have a really good conversation. There's lots for us to explore. Both of you seem to really go back to your roots in your work, and there appears to be a process of reclaiming and reconstructing through your sculpture. Chiffon, your 2022 sculpture, Rosenwald, from the series of Bible Houses, is included in the exhibition. It's an architectural form constructed from stitched Bible skins, and you named it after a Chicago public housing community. So I wondered if you could begin by introducing the work to us and telling us a bit about this use of Bibles and the buildings that you're referencing. And please, could you also share your pronouns with us? Yeah, um... Well, um, just to start with, my pronouns are he, him, occasionally toggling between they, them sometimes, but I prefer he, him. And I don't know, the, those Bibles, they actually, I do know. I, I started collecting them out of thrift stores like three years ago, just kind of, I was doing it as like this act of preventing 
this object to be out in the world in this secondhand store and be accessible to people and kind of trying to prevent them from having exposure to this information as opposed to developing their own morality or their own principles um, that are not tainted by organized religion. So it started off as me kind of just trying to prevent other people from having access to this object. And then it turned into something more therapeutic as I collected more and more Bibles and just kind of saw some of the private notes and like messages and like the object being kind of like this family heirloom that's been passed down from generations and um, gifted to people or loved ones like at a certain age in their life. It's like this coming to age object. Some people's family dynamics that I realized after kind of having access into this private world. But after after I had a couple of them, I first started to convert the covers of the Bible into actually these like more humanoid masks, these masks that you could wear, but they were more of a sculptural object for the wall to be displayed on. And then I wanted it to like show this kind of like hybridity or this metamorphosis that could occur when people are indoctrinated into religions. They kind of start to see and even verbalize the very text from these doctrines. And after I realized that I'm trying to like imbue this kind of spiritual spiritualism into the form of like these anthropomorphic masks, I started to think about, well, how else does this text permeate through culture or through domestic spaces? And then I also was thinking about how religion is directly contingent with poverty and how the two kind of always coexist with one another. And I started thinking about communities that I was brought up within in Chicago and this building in particular, the Rosenwald. The Rosenwald is the first apartment building that I was raised in. It's the first home that I remember from um, the early years of my life. And the religious community that I came from occupied the majority of this large courtyard building. So there was a lot of low-income families that were uh, devoted to this religion. So they kind of created this hub of just a community that was the most familiar to me, but you kind of don't really acknowledge the poverty because you're so focused on devoting your time to your faith and your religious beliefs. I was immersed in that community from as early as I could remember amongst so much poverty. And I thought that it would be interesting to actually extract the Bible cover as this external kind of skin, as this thing that is its own entity that has its own interiority of the pages, which I could consider being like the heart or like major organs. I kind of started thinking of the Bible as its own autonomous thing. And then extracting the actual cover from it and having that cover be predominantly leather, I began to use it as this anatomical, biological thing that is like a structure 
that permeates through the space and the walls and just the the infrastructure of this courtyard building from my past because that community was so um, just immersed in that religion. And it's important to me to have the cover and have the building feel really hollow and kind of slumping and like it's like this subsiding that's happening because of the material I'm working with old Bibles from like the 19th century or the 18th century and I'm suturing them together and making this reframing of that doctrine to something that is familiar to me and uh, confronting of this doctrine that I have felt really repressed by and trying to re-enter it in more of a healthy mind frame. It's so interesting to hear you speak about it because I've seen lots of people respond to your work in the context of the exhibition and the Bible skins really get people interested. And, you know, I've seen a lot of conversations start around that and that stitching that you describe, it really reveals that process of kind of healing and nurture that you spoke about as well you know it's very personal what you're bringing together and it creates something that's very layered and Layla you do something similar with your work in the pieces that you're bringing together we've got three of your sculptures in the exhibition there's Omalangila Junju Prince of the Buganda Kingdom Bakalipo Family of Sisters Nansamba Oinagabi from the Kucho Antelope clan. And those are three figurative sculptures that are made from wood, metal, ceramic, found objects. And you've kind of nailed and screwed them all together. And in the titles, you're referring to the Buganda clan system in Uganda. So perhaps you can tell us a bit more about that and what that process is like for you and those references that you're bringing in. And please, could you also share your pronouns with us as well? Uh, thanks, Gemma. Uh, my pronoun, my gender pronouns are she, her. I, I don't care, he, him, whatever. I just don't care, actually, um, because for many reasons, I call myself she, her, but I've been called he many times. I've been, mis- you know, so I, I just don't take any personal hard feelings on it. So I go with the flow. And uh, because so beautiful to hear. Thank you very much. Uh, I was so curious and waiting to hear read from you. Uh, you're interpreting the Bible and how you're using the Bible as a material. Uh, I come from Africa, straight from Africa, where people still respect the Bible and worship it. And the door. It's, it's it even just talking about the Bible, even just one script out of the Bible, mis, you know, misunderstanding it. It can even create a whole entire war in the country. So I was so curious to hear how our generation is now interpreting the Bible and, you know, screwing it up and burning it and breaking it and tearing it into pieces of art. Thank you for that. So about my three pieces in the show, uh, very interesting when you read about the titles, because those are old works. Uh, the most interesting part about the three titles in those in the show are the three pieces. They're all from different moods. Uh, say mood board. Uh, we have the Prince Junju, who, when I first started doing art, uh, when I started doing, when I came out as lesbian and gay person, and I'm now looking at why the backlash 
from our tradition or from where we come from. So I'm looking at the history of where did the terms themselves come from. If being gay in Africa is being taught, because this is the mentality, all the the myths we have around sexuality, uh, homosexuality, that is spread by white people. It's it is spread by, you know, it's it's being taught. So we have all these myths. As an artist, beside when I came out and then started doing art, I'm now having a lot of questions in mind. So I'm looking at our history. Where do we have these terms? Did the white people come up with these terms? No. Then it means in our history, we have this kind of act that has been going on. That's why we have uh, like the term Ebisiaga attached in Luganda to homosexuality. So it's in our history. So when I dug into our history, I'm looking at now who is most important, the kings, because everybody respects the king. Everybody understands the king. And in the history of our king, we have a bisexual king. Who, we, who the country never talks about and never talks about it. So that's how I got into the kingdom. Uh, the only way to say, my people, this is not, homosexuality is not being taught to us. Homosexuality is in us. We're born like this. That's why we've been having gay kings. That's why you don't want to talk about these gay kings. That's why we have terms associated with the gay community. In our history, way back in 1800s, Way back in 1900s, that's why we have a Visiaga. That's why we have a king that was bisexual. So that's how I started off to just sensitizing our people with the term they understand. What community can they totally understand? What myths, what history, what stories have they heard about their kings? That's how I started off. Then we have the Prince Junju, which was in the first call, in the first solo show that I had with the Gordon Rubbish here. And when you look at the Kalipo boys or Kalipo girls, these are these I won't even call them transgender women, but they're just men who are just physical men who are playing comedy. Why am I talking about the Kalipo girls? These are men who come in public dressed up as women because they're comedian, they're welcome. There's nothing bad about whatever they do. Them acting as women, them acting anything around women with their drama. So people are embracing them. And as an artist, I'm like, if you can embrace people as a form of comedy, why don't you embrace us? So that is the other piece that now I'm looking at another series of just dramatic queens. You see it in a lot of my uh, which is an identical identification. So that is now the start of me feeling like, okay, if people can accept us as comedians, why don't they accept us in real life that, yes, we are gay. These are gay men who are transgender men, transgender women, transgender men who want to be themselves. But the only way to be in public out there is to either come through comedy, is either come through any dramatic ways, so that people can accept them. So that brings up another series of my Indagamuntu session. We also have another piece that came up from uh, the, that was 2020, uh, uh, also a solo show with Gordon Rubbish, which is now, actually Prince, Prince Junju was from a two persons. And then first solo show is then Samba from the Ngabi clan, which is the Antelope clan where I come from. So that is now, all these many questions that I'm having as an artist. We come from a clan 
we come from a clan structure, just like uh, in Yorkshire, something new that I'm working on also. I realized in Yorkshire, you have clans. You're classified or identified by tartans. Is it tartans? The clothing. Yes. Yeah. Which is very close to the clans that I'm talking about in Uganda because we're British colonized. But before the British colony, we, we were formed with our own clans, whereby clans are named, uh, were given to us by our great grandparents uh, from wherever, you know, might be from animals, from mountains, from rivers, from lakes, any, any geographical feature around a certain community. So they came up with a, a, an idea of clan whereby you had to protect that clan. If you came from an antelope clan, probably you're coming from an area where there's tons of antelopes. And why you, why you're given that clan? Because you protect them. You're not supposed to kill them. They are part of your life. So that is the clan structure. So we have 52 clans in Uganda. But why do I, as an artist or as a gay person, get involved into the clan thing? It's a language that our people understand. Everybody is associated with a clan in Uganda, be from the West, from the North. You have a clan where you come from. And as an artist and as a person who's been rejected by my family, where my father wrote a big hole later, kind of throwing me out of family, he cannot take away my clan name. So he can do anything, but he can't take away my clan name. So as an artist, I'm like, okay, you can, you can take away the, the name, whatever you want to, but you cannot take the fact that I have an origin as a gay person. And that cannot be taken away from us. Just like our bath names. Our parents can't take our bath names. They can't take anything. They can't take their property they gave us when we are old. They can't take anything away from us, but they cannot take the fact that they gave us our first names until we want to take away those names. We don't want to use those names, but we have an original. So my original is my clan. And I'm assuming there's also other gay people in other clans that are being disowned or being rejected by the society. So as an artist, I, I, what I'm creating is just creating clans, just making art and giving it names from, from my people, from different gay communities, and just giving them a clan. And uh, in, uh, we're just having our clan stable. And it's a really powerful approach to reconstructing the self in some ways. You know, I'm hearing both of you talk about doing this quite intensive labor of working back through some of your histories and looking at these pieces that do get passed on through families, you know, whether it's the Bibles that are passed on as family heirlooms or whether it's the clans, the clan names, the clan history, there are these pieces that you are both kind of blowing up and then taking the parts that feel relevant to you and piecing them back together in order to reimagine your place in the world. And it's kind of like, rather than disregarding those difficult bits, you know, the colonial histories, the religious oppression, you're kind of looking for new meanings in them. And I feel like the choice of materials that you both use really reflects that as well. Chiffon with yours, you've spoken about the Bible skins, but there's also building materials, old timber, and you use this process of stitching. You called it suturing earlier. 
I'm interested to hear you speak about what that construction process looks like for you and how it relates to the past, the present, and even the future. I really, I just really love what you just said, Lilo, because it's really like interesting thinking about how you have a tie to these histories that can feel very um, rigid and just really oppressive and rigid and painful. But nonetheless, you still are a part of the larger fabric of that whole. Like you cannot be extracted from it. People try to make it make things that they don't understand this abject thing, this thing to be cashed out or excluded. And is you can't change the fact that you have a lineage or like the fact that you come from a family tree or family history. I love that. I think that's why I gravitate towards objects in the world too that are of a past that could be incredibly violent, racist. Uh, I use a lot of colonial building parts specifically because I love the idea of like ruin and decay. I love the aesthetic of it. I, I am drawn to more of an organic palette naturally. So some of that texture that occurs from things weathering or being handled or being used for their purpose or function is really beautiful to me. It gives this thing more of a story or gives this thing this power to be a witness of just like a a timeline. Or I don't know, I just really respect that about finding something in the world uh, having an opportunity to possess it and then give it a secondary purpose or a new synergy. And then the objects are already really charged and coded. So I'm curious about them. I'm curious of what have what has upheld them over time. So I cut them up and I'm trying to extract from them as much as I can. I'm not a scientist, but I do know how to deconstruct things because I feel like I've done that with my own identity, having to re- deconstruct it and bring it back together um, independently and then realizing that I cannot, when I was going on my through my own self-work to reconstruct my own identity, I was trying to basically kill off a past of myself. And to me, that that is just super unhealthy. You have to address the past to kind of be able to move forth. And I've gotten a lot of that through therapy. And I use that in a way that I address objects that I, I feel have been oppressive to my own family lineage, too. I cannot totally disregard them, but what can I do to make them just address this kind of concurrency of past and present and future. They're always uh, symbiotic to one, one another and you have to analyze it from every angle. So being able to obtain objects from the past, especially these objects that represent class, social class structures, or like you clearly can see through the decor of parts of a building how much a family had uh, economically. So 
but it makes you question, well, who were the actual developers of these objects who did some of this woodwork, who crafted them? And it's usually the people who are not inhabiting the space. So it's kind of this amalgamation of, of just history congealed into one object. And I'm splicing it up and then bringing it into this contemporary modern space with a different function that is familiar to me or I can activate it to use it in some other kind of manner that is not so exclusive of, I don't know, exclusive of my community or my own history or roots. Yeah, it's just just a readdressing of it. I talk about this all the time. I think about material uh, as on a molecular level. Like I'm really trying to bring it down into a single molecule so that I could reconfigure it back together into a whole. So cutting up wood or cutting up metal and rewelding it together or cutting up the Bible parts, cutting up silicone that looks like skin and bringing it back together to make this this new entity that I can understand is really helpful for me. And I might not know every aspect of its history, but it's something more psychological and I think biological that I understand about it just innately is something comforting in that. It's really powerful. I think this notion of the pieces in your sculptures having been a witness to a timeline and all of those layers of history and experience being present in the in the physical work is really really powerful and i i feel like layla your work it shares a similar aesthetic in some ways that weathering and aging of the found materials that um chiffon was describing with his as well and that process of deconstructing in order to reconstruct you know i i know you are newly into welding i've seen the chainsaws in your studio like you are also getting into that like quite laborious process of reconstruction um uh thank you very much uh still listening on how beautiful you're explaining how i use uh, farm materials thank you yeah i just really love what you said too like just even thinking about like how many queer figures in history or like in politics that are never acknowledged. And I don't know vastly like extensively who those figures are, but I've heard through friends and just colleagues about positions of power being held by queer people and they always go under the radar or, um, yeah, they get discard- discarded or disregarded. I don't know. I just really love that. I'm like, it's it's in our timeline and we just refuse to accept that that is a possibility to not try to control and manipulate people through systems or gender um, conforming roles. It's, it's just all of me. It's just to control people. Religion too. I think that's why I'm just so fixated on it. It's like people need faith and then it gets exploited. And those people are always there and have always been there. And we need those people because you need to be able to have identification 
with historical figures. That representation is so valuable. You know, whatever part of history you're looking at, those figures have been there. It's just whether their experiences have been archived and we get to hear about them or not. I'm hosting a conversation on Friday, actually, between an artist and a writer, Luke Edward Hall and Sean Hewitt, who've just made a book called 300,000 Kisses. And it's looking at the queer love stories from the ancient world. You know, it's looking at all the Greeks and Romans that were queer and trans and have been just written out of that ancient history. I think there's quite a lot of work going into this at the moment, is looking at those, looking for those figures and kind of reclaiming those historical narratives. There's another really great book actually called Bad Gaze. And the first figure they look at in that is Hadrian of Hadrian's Wall, who turns out was a gay. You know, it's all these figures that we just don't hear about. We're not being taught about, but they're there. Leila, how do you find out about those figures? The one, the clan uh, figures and the kings that you've been looking at? It's a uh, curiosity, actually. It's, uh, you know, wonder, wondering why people act, people pretending like they've never heard of gay people, you know, like they've even never heard of, uh, you know, the, the whole combination of LGBTI persons. We have names, original Uganda or Luganda names that are attached to, to these, you know, to our community. And uh, also the fact that these poems, idioms, uh, stories that have been said about the LGBT community and the curiosity is, I think, what kind of drove me to kind of dig to find out, is it... Is it in our generation to be gay? You know, if it has, it is our generation. Where did we get it from? But uh, it's it's curiosity. Yeah, it turns out it's not new. Exactly, it's not new. And why would uh, people behave like it is new? Because people have dealt with the LGBTI community. It takes me back to even the fan material that I use. When you look at my process of fan material, it comes from Elsiega, Elsiega, which is a a, a, a Luganda term that has been there for many years, even before my grandfather was born, my great-grandfather. So it's been attached. It has been there. So why why Elsiega and why why that term? Why is it, if you look at the history and how it repeats itself, how people are still being treated as trash, even from the fact that there is that term that is associated with the LGBTI community. Yeah, it's really beautiful that, that, like I read in your bio, that you kind of use that and that's represented in the work and in the pieces that you bring together. They kind of represent that language, that phrase. Thanks. It's, it's kind of just bringing, giving light to what people think is dead or what people feel like it's, un, it's not wanted. But how do we bring a purpose to us? It's recreating and bringing the trash out of whatever they think it is and just creating something beautiful. In other words, I'm showing the purpose of us. If I'm a gay person, it doesn't mean that I'm trash even to community. I'm, I'm in a community that I support and I support my whole family. I, everybody respects me. So why would I be called trash? So that's bringing the purpose of us. And I've always told it to, to, from there on to my LGBTI community people, it's it's not about crying all the time. We need to show who we are, what what our what are our strengths, 
to the people? What can we do to communities? This is when we can be accepted, unlike us coming all the time, crying, uh, you know, blaming, blaming us for who we are. But we have to show a purpose in communities so that people see our purpose. That's why I relate it with, with the trash coming out in our persons and uh, showing what we are worth in community. You know, your story really demonstrates that resilience and that strength. You, well, both of you have really had to work hard to build new communities. You, you've both moved in this kind of search for home. You've both faced a lot of challenges. I wonder if, Layla, you could share a little bit about that journey, what it's been like, you know, for you. It is a long, long, long journey. <laughs> From, uh, it's, it's now, it's, it's actually made nine years this year. And if you asked me to, to explain the nine years in just five minutes, that can't happen because it's been a long journey of uh, learning a lot of things my, about myself as a person, uh, learning to associate with people, learning the business part of it in, in the art world, just making art and traveling now, you know, from the fact that when you come here, you, you're restricted even from traveling before you get your asylum. And then now I can travel. So it's been a whole long one. You know, it's a very long one, but, you know, successful uh, moving on. But it's been a great, uh, every, every little step that I've, I've passed through since I came in here, I've always called it educative and I've always taken it on to very personal because it's, it's been a step by step from collecting cans, from staying in people's couches, from cleaning people's houses, from it's, it's been a lot to where I am right now as an artist or as a person who is here today. I always tell people it's, it's a step. It's, it's been a step. It's a whole story that I can't explain even in five days, you know? Because there is all those little things you have to remember. Oh, this happened. This one helped me. This happened. This, but I, I would say it's it's uh, it's been um it has been and it's still an amazing way of learning. Till today, I'm still learning, and um, I'm still. I I always call New York my second home. Actually, um, from wherever I go, because I'm all over the place visiting there and then, but. Then at the end of the day, I have to come back to New York, which I find, which I still call home, my second home, but I'm also not so sure. You know, you're always not so sure with whatever, whatever is going on in the world right now. The world is crazy. You're not so sure. I'm not so sure. Yeah. I, I could relate to that where, I don't know, you just got to be aware, always self-aware, just the times and there's always a possibility for those who are in a minority group to be alienated or a target. So it's kind of difficult even just thinking about the times right now of how to be reassured of a place that is home. Because, at, I mean, you just seeing examples of how people can change and how media can can change or impre have impressions upon people. And then it's hard to kind of trust or rely on the news or I just feel really vulnerable sometimes but all but similarly through the years it's been really hard and it has allowed me to grow up really quickly and kind of 
be reassured that if I am always myself, then I am always putting my best foot forward. And every decision that I've made out of that mindset has progressed me in some way and has allowed me to just take a risk, even if it looks like it's not the best possible option. Because it's authentic, the decisions I make, the outcome is usually greater. I moved here to LA by myself just to see what I would be like, external to community that was familiar to me, not dependent on any kind of school relationships, going to graduate school and then coming straight here and just seeing what does my life look like? What kind of a household would I like to see myself craft out of nothing? Because I really, I didn't really have that opportunity to do that. I was in, I was with my family in this religion and shelter for so long that I hadn't really had a chance to fully just experience myself on every level. But now that I'm doing that, I don't know, it's interesting, but it can feel really isolating because I feel like there's a huge distance between me and my, um, the community that I was so familiar with. And it's kind of a void that I'm trying to read, trying to cultivate and feel. But I actually don't know if it, I don't know. I, I Sometimes I don't really know what is, it's just, things just stay unresolved for me sometimes. And my work too, it's like, I'm not trying to reach some kind of resolution that is fixed because once that happens, it's no, you're not prepared for something to shift, which is what I'm used to. It's like things feeling unstable. And yeah, I think that minority groups are just always in this instability. And that comes across, I think, in both of your work. But the way you both speak about it, and I think this whenever I spend time with either of you as well, like you both, you just really approach the world and these particular challenges with such optimism. And I find it really inspiring. And I think there's a lot of hope to be taken from that you know, with both of your stories and the amazing work that you both make. I want to give people a chance to hear where they can go and see your work, because I know you both have a lot going on right now. Layla, you already mentioned Yorkshire, and you were talking about Yorkshire Sculpture Park, where you did a residency earlier this year, and you have a show coming up next year. What can we expect to see, apart from some very serious welding? You should expect to see, we did a lot of work out there. We were there for six weeks and um, I had 10 assistants, 10 people helping me to do work. So you should, ex- I, I, I don't want to uh, cook it so bad. <laughs> I don't want to make you so excited, but I know I'm good. And I know when I make a masterpiece and I, I know you, you're seeing all masterpieces. Oh my God, I can't wait. So you should expect all the works have to make you cry. If you don't cry, please uh, don't come back. No, no pressure. No pressure. No, don't come back. And um, so, and some exciting news, you know, some some new things coming up next year. But for the Yorkshire show, that one is uh, already uh, talked about. Uh, it's going to be end of March. 
here in this country they say mouth mouth closed i don't know what that means <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean this is great <laughs> i you, don't know what you are, <laughs> you're on fire in the uk we're seeing so much of your work at the moment i'm delighted about it you just had this beautiful solo booth at freeze london with stephen friedman gallery that was the talk of the fair it was so good Thanks. So yeah, we're ready for more mas- ready for more masterpieces. First, first uh, bronze sculpture in Ragged Park. A bronze? Yeah. Oh my gosh! Nine feet was so amazing. It's, uh, it's in Ragged Park. Yeah, it is amazing. Yeah, and it's part of Freeze Sculpture in Regent's Park in London. L- last weekend coming up, I think it's just um just about to come down. Amazing. Congratulations. And and Shifan, Shifan, what about you? You're You've got lots going on as well. You've got you're in the Hammer Museum Biennial that I mentioned in the intro. Yeah, I'm in this amazing group show at Leslie Lohman. Yes, you are. With Layla (laughs) and 21 other amazing. Is it 22? 20 20 other amazing artists. 20 total, so 19 plus you. Yes, 19 other amazing artists. And I just did a group show at the Blaffer Museum in Houston. That was a lot of fun. And then I was honored to be in Made in LA 2023. I really feel included in this community out here of artists. So that was that was a big deal for me. And then the Cavernous, and that's in Ridgefield, Connecticut, at the Aldridge Museum, which I worked on that show for a long time. So I'm really happy about that and hopefully a couple things next year too. Yeah. And then hopefully you'll come to the UK in March and we can go to Layla's show together. Do, I would love that. Do this this in person. It's overdue. Yeah. <laughs> You're both doing so much. Okay. Last question for both of you. This is something I have. I ask all guests. So you just have to humor me. What is your dream of home? You had advance warning, so it's not a total shocker. I, know. <laughs> I don't know why you're looking so shocked, Siobhan. I was like, I was, just, I was thinking about that yesterday. I was like, what is, I don't, I was like, how crazy can it, can it be a game? I don't know. It can I be like as crazy games. as you want. Make, take it crazy. For some reason, I kept thinking about food. Like, I don't know why I kept relating, like, a dream home to, like, certain, like, foods for, like, like a room full of 90s television shows that I remember coming up with and like certain winter vacations, like around Christmas, like just like a captive room where it's stuck in a certain time frame type of a space where I feel the most nostalgic. And safe, it sounds like, too. Yeah, safe. That's great. So. I love that. We have not had that one before. Tell you that. <laughs> Layla, what about you? What's your dream of home? Um, thank you, Gemma. Thanks. Uh, I also would like to um, say congratulations, Chiffon. Thank you. Yes. I made it right. <laughs> that was perfect. To all, everything going on, the old rage, the hammer, the, you know, everything you're in. It, it takes a lot of hard work. People don't know that. A lot of hard work, a lot of growth uh, to get where we are. And it's a lot of uh, things to take in. And plus, I'm, uh, I've never been in any other country. It's first time I'm in the U.S. and then seeking asylum and then showing. And then so it's it's process by process. 
and taking in every little step the way it comes in. Today you're in a mistakes, and then tomorrow you're cleaning it up. You're having help. You don't have any help. So to me, what would be my dream home, or what would I call home at the end of the day? Like I've told you, I've not even thought of New York as well. I say it's my second home, but I'm also not so sure. Uh, with the madness and craziness, uh, how would I define home? I think home has to then be me. I have to be at the end of the day home. What do I? How do I feel comfortable? And where do I feel comfortable? So I think my home next, my next home is where I am going, and what makes me comfortable and where I feel accepted. It's very hard to be in a place where they will accept you, but at least you have a fifty-fifty percent of acceptance. Uh, you know, being happy around people who are really happy about what you're doing and you. And I think that's what I would call home. It, it would be me and where I'm going, not with where I'm going with my studio, where I'm going with my apartment. It's about me because at the end of the day, wherever I go, it's, it's the home. I'm the home. What, what do I have to feel in my home is feel loved, feel peace, feel protected, feel secure. So I'm the home, I think. You are, and you're doing it. You're building that home right now. I see it. Thank you, Layla. Thank you both. Thank you, Layla. Thank Thank you, you, Siobhan. Thank you you for being on this podcast with me. Love you both. And it was great to hear from you both. Thank you for sharing so much with us today. Love you, Gemma. Thank you, Layla. Let's hang out. Thank you. Looking forward to meet you. This episode is brought to you by the Leslie Lohman Museum of Art. Dreaming of Home is on view until January 7th, 2024. Learn more about the show at lesliloman.org. Join us for the next episode in this series where we ask, where can we feel at home? In our skin, in each other's embrace, amongst our chosen families. Where are our queer and trans bodies safe, housed and free to be themselves? I'm Gemma Rolls-Bentley and this is Dreaming of Home. The show music is Fantasy Island Obsession, written and performed by friend of the podcast, Tom Rasmussen, featuring Kai Isaiah Jamal.